0: How's everybody doing today? Good. A few of you are okay. That's awesome. I love it. I'm that way too sometimes. Oh, man. Well, friends, today, um, let's see. Richard, you can go ahead and go to the next slide. The uh, next one, too yeah so we've been going through a series and the title for today's message is called the deeper way our passage is going to be matthew 5 17 through 20 and the big idea in really big bold letters there for you is that fulfilling god's unchanging righteousness requires complete obedience fulfilling god's unchanging righteousness requires complete obedience this morning like i said we're continuing in a series called the kingdom manifesto if you want to catch up on any of those messages that we've done so far they're on our website florencevangelicalchurch.com so feel free to look that up Uh, we've been going on a journey through the gospel of matthew in the bible we're and we're at this place where we're camping out in what's most commonly known as the sermon on the mount where jesus taught his followers on the side of a mountain by the sea of galilee and it's here in this sermon that we get this clear picture of the kingdom of heaven that earlier on in the gospel of matthew john the baptist had been preaching about and jesus also carried on that mantle of teaching where he decided to go and preach and say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and so we get this picture in the Sermon on the Mount about what the Kingdom of Heaven is, what the ethics that shape the culture of God's Kingdom are, and how that relates to us. But before we continue this look at what God has to say to us through the Sermon on the Mount, I wonder if you've ever thought about how important punctuation marks are. Maybe you've done some exercises before, maybe not so long ago, maybe a longer, long time ago, in English class or writing skills class or you got a letter from one of your kids and you think, gee whiz, can't they just learn how to not only spell but use punctuation marks properly? Whatever the case may be, I have some examples. Uh, Richard, go ahead and go to the first slide there. Okay, so the difference a punctuation mark can make, there are $25 bills or... $25 bills. And there's the difference in the amount there. So we can tell from this graphic that hyphens matter. Go ahead and go to the next slide. There's a difference between eat your dinner and eat your dinner. (laughs) Apostrophes matter. All right, go to the next one. This one's a little bit more serious, y'all. We're going to get back to funny in a second. But there's one that says, I'm sorry, I love you. Or, I'm sorry, I love you. Semicolons matter. Here's, here's one I love. There's a security guard, and then there's a security guard. If I'm calling a security guard, I want the top one, not the chihuahua, personally. Here we go. All right, here's one. I want to thank my parents... Tiffany and God, or I want to thank my parents, Tiffany and God. What's called Oxford commas, they also matter, uh, as you can see from the graphic there. Um, There's this one, we'll end on this. There's let's eat grandma (laughs) versus let's eat grandma. Just normal commas matter also. Now, I could have just given you one or two examples, but those are too funny to leave out. And so uh, there are clearly, there's a, uh, punctuations matter. And so today, we're celebrating God's word together. It's Halloween, October 31st, but it's also a really important day for our church Because beyond just all the fun and revelry that kids get to have and dressing up and getting candy and all of that jazz, it's also known as Reformation Day. Happy Reformation Day, everybody. My daughter looked at me like I was crazy last night as I was trying to tell her the significance of Reformation Day. But if you don't know, or, or you're new to church, or you're new to the Christian faith, or all of that, and you're like, what is going on here? Reformation. Uh, there was one point in history. It's hard to believe, but there were only two kinds of churches available. There was once one, but then there became two. There's reasons for that, but at one point in Europe, there was one church, and there was one holy roman catholic church that's what they called it right and then in the year 1517 a german monk by the name of martin luther nailed what he called his 95 theses on the door of a church in wittenberg germany and luther if you didn't know was a man who was committed to serving the church and god's people But like a lot of people at the time, Luther had noticed that there was a difference between the faith that he read about in the Bible and the faith that was being lived out by the religious leaders in his day and what he saw being peddled to the common folk of the day. And so this simple act of protest, that's where we get the word Protestant from, protest, was meant to reform and realign the church with God's word. Luther didn't want to split the church, he wanted unity, but the religious establishment at the time wasn't as convinced as Luther was, and so they rejected his 95 theses. They kicked him out of the church and went a step further and did what's called excommunication, which basically is the Excuse my French, but the go to hell from the church. That's like, that's the weight of what they were saying to him. Well, that didn't bother him too much, so he decided to start his own church. That's where we get the Lutheran church from. And I'm sure there's a lot more nuance there. I wasn't raised in the Lutheran tradition, and so forgive me. But we get the Lutheran church as well as all the Protestant churches and church expressions that we have today, including our church. Now, one of the values of the Protestant Reformation was this idea that was called sola scriptura. It's Latin for only scripture. And that was their way of saying, we're not going to base our faith on just tradition and religion alone. We're going to base our faith, our our way of living faith on the bible on the firm foundation of god's word and so as a product of the reformation our church we subscribe to that ethic and we find reinforcement of this value of only scripture in the words of jesus that's found in matthew chapter five so with the same attention to detail that we used when we were looking at all those images of the punctuation marks, and with the same passion for God and his word that we find in the example of Martin Luther, let's read what Jesus had to say to his disciples all those years ago. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation to start us out if you'd like to follow along it's up here on the screen as well Matthew 5 beginning in verse 17 jesus speaking don't misunderstand why i have come i did not come to abolish the law of moses or the writings of the prophets no i came to accomplish their purpose i tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear not even the smallest detail of god's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved so if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven but anyone who obeys god's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven but i warn you Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord recorded by the Apostle Matthew. Uh, Would you repeat this prayer after me? It's one that I learned a few years ago from a pastor that I admire, and I think it's a good way of centering our mind around the scriptures your word is written in my mind your word is hidden in my heart your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path I will seek you with all my strength I choose to live my life life. according According. to your word your word word. oh lord Lord. is eternal Eternal. amen Amen. now the first truth we learn from our passage is that god's word doesn't change in verse 18 we're going to jump around a bit in case you wonder Uh, Jesus said this, I'll read from the English Standard Version. He said, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until it's accomplished. If you're reading from the King James translation or some affiliate to that, you might have read the words jot and tittle. uh, Or like we read a few moments ago from the New Living Translation, they rendered that Uh, small details and what those are referring to are the written punctuation marks that form each letter and phrase in the scriptures and here jesus elevates the importance and significance of the smallest details of the law the punctuation how much more the words of god that are framed by that punctuation and those details amen Now, also in verse 18, Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. The Greek word that's used here for law is the word namas, not to be confused with namaste. That's a whole other thing. But namas is what we translate as law. And it was used in the Bible to talk about the writings of Moses. It was used sometimes to talk about religious systems and sometimes... Uh, It was used to talk about the whole of the Old Testament scripture from uh, Genesis through Malachi. Normally, when we talk in the church about God's word, what we're referring to is the the biblical idea of the Greek word logos, which uh, is literally the translated word for words. Now, I didn't come here just to tell you Greek, but what's important about that is Logos is God's written word in the scriptures. The Apostle John described Jesus as the living, embodied Logos. In John 1 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, or Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the common thread between these two words, even though jesus used the word namas the common thread is that both are used to talk about the words that god had spoken that have been recorded under the inspiration of the holy spirit and preserved for us in the 66 books in the bibles that we hold in our hands today now there's a couple of ways that this applies to us the first is that god's word is true and he is true to his word Something that we have come to learn and appreciate in this generation, maybe not appreciate as much, but something we hold as just a general fact, is that there is and always will be change until Jesus comes (laughs) again. And so each and every day all around us is changing. But I believe that an equal truth to that is that God's word doesn't change. And if God's word doesn't change, that means that it's something I can bank on. It's something that I can trust in. The second way that this applies to us is that it means that we can't change it to fit our own agenda. Praise the Lord. There are people that may misquote it and may take certain verses out of context. But as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119 verse 89 and we Quoted it in that prayer God's word is eternal. And that means that even when our culture in our country or our world speaks directly against what God's word says, it's in that place that we are faced with a choice. Who will be the authority in our lives, the world or the God whose words are recorded in the Bible? One pastor named Robert F. Loggins once put it like this. He said, Don't ever say yes if God has already said no. When God says no, immediately agree with him and proceed to your new assignment. If we are to produce fruit, God's no never means yes, it is unwholesome and will never lead to wholeness. In the places, that God's divine culture and our natural culture clash, we can either choose to accept or reject what God speaks. But we can't change it. God's word doesn't change. And fulfilling God's unchanging righteousness requires complete obedience. The second truth, next slide, that we learn from these verses in Matthew is that we need... A deeper walk we huh, I need to read it the proper way we need a deeper way of walking in <laughs> obedience I'm sure that when Jesus spoke the words in verse 20 of you know unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the Pharisees I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop because this would have been a wake-up call to the people and it should be a wake-up call to us today now, immediately following the Babylonian exile, some church, not church, but like some, you know, Bible history for you, the nation of Israel, they were exiled, whole big thing, we won't get into it, but they were exiled because they were, had broken God's law and broken covenant with God. And so religious groups like the Pharisees and the scribes and teachers of religious law, they were obsessively trying to make sure that their people did not break god's law because the people wanted to honor god that was the good and they wanted to continue living in the promised land albeit you know kind of a strange situation with the roman occupation and all of that they didn't want to go back into exile they didn't want to be ruled by the babylonians again let alone the romans that they were facing and so the jews they went on to write a guide to the law that explained how to apply each and every law that's written into the old testament over 400 of them how to apply that to their daily lives for example on the sabbath day it made it into the top 10 on the sabbath day what was considered work how far could you walk on your day of rest. What could you do? What shouldn't you do? What did it look like to obey this command? And for that reason, because that raises a lot of questions when you're like, well, is it okay if I bake a casserole on my day of rest? Or what should I do? Those kinds of things. That's why they wrote a companion guide. There are a couple of problematic issues, though, that came from all of this. The first is that these interpretations and traditions were actually seen as equally significant to the law itself. So instead of simply relying on God and his word, they trusted in a tradition that had developed around God's word. The second is that they completely missed the point of what God was trying to do through the promise and through the law. We can gather that from their religiousness that they assumed God was more concerned about their behavior than their heart. That's what they thought. And isn't that a challenge for us as believers today? We get so tripped up on following a bunch of rules, trying to make sure that our righteousness and the things that we do match up with God and his word, that we assume that the only goal of the gospel is behavior modification. And that's not a complete view of the gospel, friends. You know, we have thoughts like this. If I can just change the things I do, then maybe then I could experience God's favor in my life. If I could just white knuckle it through my addictions, then maybe I could experience some freedom in my life. If I could just do the right things that I know that God says I'm supposed to do, then maybe my family would be okay. Maybe my neighborhood would be okay. If I could just do fill in the blank, then I could be right with God. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had those thoughts or experiences? So that begs the question, what's Jesus getting at when he says that our righteousness needs to be better than the ultra-super-religious people of his day? What does he mean? For starters, we know that the law is not changing anytime soon. Jesus is really clear about that. And that God's word will continue to mean what it says. We can also gather that Jesus affirms that value to the smallest detail. But with that in mind, I don't think that Jesus is saying that we need to get better at religion. I believe that Jesus is saying that our commitment and our devotion to God needs to go beyond just the letters and the punctuations of the law, our righteousness needs to be defined by something deeper than all of that. The truth is we need a deeper way to walk in obedience because fulfilling God's unchanging righteousness still requires complete obedience. Let's keep going. The third truth we learn from Jesus' teaching is that Where we fail, there should be a comma there, where we fail, Jesus fulfills. Throughout all we've talked about so far, here's the rub. The people Jesus was talking to on the mountain, and the people reading it here today, we are all sinners. We find in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25a, if you're curious, the Apostle Paul writes, Quote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus himself said that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? First, it means that Jesus was and continues to be the only person ever to perfectly and completely obey God's law. Next, it means that Jesus as the promised Messiah was the one who the law and the prophets was directing us to all along. The fact that we don't achieve righteousness on our own means that we need someone who can. And that someone needs to be someone who would come and save us from our sin and redeem us and restore us to become the humans that God created us to be. Third, Jesus' fulfillment also means that he completes and transcends the Old Testament law. And that it all should be reinterpreted and reapplied as we read it in light of his work on the cross. Like we read in Romans 3, Jesus was our propitiation. That's a fancy way of saying he was our substitute. Dying the death that we deserved, so that we could live life to the full in him. Where we fail, Jesus fulfills. That's why we have access to the Father and His kingdom. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we have access to the kingdom of God. Not because of anything we've done, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. Like Dr. J. Vernon McGee once said in his commentary, he said, the commandments are not a way of salvation, but a means to show you the way to salvation through acceptance of the work of jesus christ the bible supports this where in hebrews chapter 10 verses 20 through 21 the writer says by his death jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place that's temple imagery If you have questions, ask me later. Okay, continuing on, Hebrews 10. And since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. It's not our works, friends that gives us access to the kingdom. It's always only Jesus who gives us access to the kingdom because we fail. And where we fail, Jesus fulfills. And fulfilling God's unchanging righteousness requires complete obedience. So when God looks at us, when we are covered by, as the old hymns, The Solid rock says, Jesus' blood and righteousness The record of his complete obedience is applied to us even though we fail. Friends, that's good news. And the fourth and final truth we learn from our passage is really just an application of it all. That we can walk in obedience when we are filled by and submitted to the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, Jesus said that, quote, anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this verse implies that we should take God's word seriously. We shouldn't write it off. We shouldn't diminish it in any way. We should let God's word say what it needs to say. And in regards to this issue of obedience, I would submit to you today that Jesus, even though he didn't say these exact words or even this point, this is an interpretation of what I believe Jesus is saying. I believe Jesus was forecasting a reality to his followers that would come because of what he did on the cross. We read about this reality in the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, 25 through 28, where God said through the prophet, quote, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's one of my favorite verses because I believe it it speaks so much of the gospel. The cleansing that Ezekiel wrote about speaks of Jesus' blood to wash us clean from our sin. But beyond that cleansing, although that would be good, there is a promise of a change that needs to take place inside of us. We need a new heart that isn't hardened by sin. We need a heart that can be sensitive to God's leading and not stubborn and stiff-necked like the Israelites. And with it, we need the Holy Spirit, not just with us, walking with us, but in us, Causing us to be able to walk in obedience to God and his righteous standards. With the Holy Spirit's help, you can begin living righteous and holy lives. Did you know that? I think we've talked about that before. That doesn't mean that we don't mess up, that doesn't mean we don't sin, but what it does mean is that the Holy Spirit is in you. You are now a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you don't have to sin. And you can start experiencing victory now. You don't have to wait for heaven. You can have victory now. That's what God wants for you. One of the key things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives is he helps us become more like Jesus, both in our character and in our action. So, because fulfilling God's unchanging righteous request righteousness requires complete obedience we can walk in obedience when we are filled by and submitted to the holy spirit now as a response to everything we've read about today worship team you can come up i believe god is calling us to make a fresh commitment to trust in him both in the fulfillment that jesus modeled for us and This promise of the Holy Spirit to help. You see, the deeper way that Jesus is calling us into is really to trust him and to invite the Holy Spirit into every moment of our lives. Did you know that you can pray to the Holy Spirit? That you can ask the Holy Spirit. He's equally God with the Son and with the Father. That's one of those really cool things things and we can talk about it sometime but you can ask the holy spirit and i would just encourage you that as we sing through this final song that if you've never received the holy spirit before if you've never been filled with the holy spirit it's really simple it's really easy It's not scary. It's not not supposed to be weird or anything like that. It's a God thing, and and it's really easy. All you have to do is surrender to God. And one of the easiest ways to surrender is to hold out your hands, and kind of like you're about to receive a gift, and you're offering up your heart to Jesus. You're saying, Jesus, Jesus, would you take this heart of stone from me and replace it with that heart of flesh Tim was just talking about? That I may not know a whole lot about this, but Lord, I want more of you today than I had yesterday. That I need more of you in my life because I want to walk in obedience. I want to live in your kingdom. It's just that easy. And pray to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come into my heart and into my life today? Would you be the Lord of my life? And, and that's it. And um, so we're going, I'm going to pray as I walk over here. That's where we're at right now in, in the scheme of things. Um, but let this just be a time between you and the Lord. If you need to make uh, your pew into an altar or you want to come down front and pray or, you know, h- however you want to do this thing, I just invite you to... Submit yourself to the Lord in this time. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time, and we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that uh, that you don't back down from uh, difficult situations and difficult topics. I also thank you that you have given us your word as, as an eternal anchor to you, God, that we can rest knowing that there is a God who loves us and who is for us and has made every way possible for us to live a full life, the life that you have for us, God, that you have planned for us. So right now, God, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and move among us. We open up our hearts and we open up our lives to you to come and have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.